Thanks, Emilio, for the best introduction you could manage. <laughs> so my kids were like, can we, will we see you? Will we see you? So, you know, I'm navigating that this morning. We drove in from East Ham, which is where we live. And I will share just a little bit about myself because I feel like you, you know, you're probably kind of wondering, like, who is this guy? My wife went to get ice cream two and a half years ago when we moved to East Ham. So you can rest assured I'm normal. I eat ice cream and my wife does too. And so she goes in this ice cream place. She meets somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Pastor Eric. And they say, you should talk to Pastor Eric. And we were so new in town, had no church, no friends, no anything like that. I work remotely as a writer, like Emilio was saying. And so we're up here, meet Pastor Eric. He's nice enough to come out to Coast Guard Beach, which apparently was kind of a joy for him. So I was his excuse to sit at the beach for a few hours. And so we hung out. We just got to know each other. We had some good conversations, kept in touch. Been worshiping online with you for a while but have been able to do that. Speaking of worshiping online, I don't want to get distracted from worship, but you see us wearing masks. I'll acknowledge the elephant in the room. I'm not sick and I'm not afraid. We've just had to navigate a little bit different path as a family. It's just looked a little different for us. So that's our thing with masks, but we can greet you. We can worship in person and we're all set. I'm trying to think of what else to say. Um, grew up in the South, which you probably noticed. If you haven't picked up a Southern accent, it's there. You just got to give it a little time. I was born and raised in East Tennessee, close to the Smoky Mountains. Beautiful place, driving to high school every day. Once I had my license, I would see the Smokies right out in front of like the road that my high school was on. So that was an amazing way to grow up. Loved doing that. Started following Christ in high school when a guy invited me to church. Uh, he was a friend, which was pretty significant in high school. And he also knew Jesus. And so that started me really understanding the scriptures, realizing God actually talks to me. God loves me. God wants to have a relationship with me. So one thing led to another. And I just have, you know, as imperfectly as I can or as perfectly as I <laughs> sometimes do, I've been able to walk with Jesus for the last 25 years. Before I go right into the heart of the message, I need Richard to do me a favor. I was going to ask Pastor Eric to do this, but his flight was canceled. So you're the, pretty much the only other person like I know well here. I did the men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, and so it was a great time. That's one of the ways I got connected and got to know. So I'm going to give you this. Because I think all of you, sorry to those of you on Facebook, but all of you deserve to know that since Pastor Eric's not here to like jerk me off and turn the mic off, I mean, Greg will turn the mic off if it gets really bad, but Richard, you have my permission. If it gets out of hand, come get me, you know what I mean? So yeah, you can throw it, you can like leap over the chair, whatever you got to do. Do you know what one of the hardest times for a family is? It's dinner time. It's dinner time because somebody says, I don't want to eat my vegetables. That's for people who have children my age. Maybe some of you as adults don't want to eat yours, but you've quit talking about it. Others of you live in a family where somebody goes, oh, we're not going there again, are we? Not again. And you know you're talking about like one of those restaurants that has ham sandwiches and like chicken tenders and like surf and turf and things from foreign countries and all this kind of food. And still there's somebody in the family who's like, not that restaurant again. Please don't know. Not there. Dinner time becomes division time. And in about 10 days, we have this massive meal coming called Thanksgiving which is even more food and even more family and even more complexity. I told you that I was from the South. I'm going to take advantage of something this year you might not be able to do, which is that all of my family's in the deep South and they're going to stay there <laughs> and I'm going to stay here. 
So I'm going to have like small family time, which means small family dynamics. We just kind of manage what we're used to every day. As for you, this morning we're going to study Esther 1 through 10, the whole book of Esther. I'm not going to preach every chapter, not going to read every chapter, so you can take a deep breath. Richard, you won't get to use the baseball bat yet. I can't do that in a single morning or probably even like multiple mornings, but if Pastor Eric was here or if he decides it's worth it, then you'll get to hear Pastor Eric attempt some grand feat like that. I'm just glad to be his friend. I wish he was here this morning. He and I have had great conversations like I talked about. But when I, when, I, um, when I share from Esther, you're probably wondering, since I'm not going to read the whole book to you, why am I doing this and what's going on? Well, Esther has two main characters, Esther and Mordecai. They are cousins. Mordecai is older, Esther is younger, and Esther and Mordecai and many, many other Jews are living in Susa. They're in this city, Susa, which is in Persia, and they live there because the Jewish army was defeated by the Persian army. Oh, sorry, the Babylonian army, Persian army defeats the Babylonians. You don't have to remember all the history. Point is, they're not at home. They're living in another country. They're navigating other culture. They're navigating other politics, other cultural dynamics, spiritual beliefs. Everything's different. But there's some lessons for us, even for this family. Because things are not right in Esther's world. Things are not easy in Esther's world. Things are not comfortable in Esther's world. Things are not pure. They're not as they should be. Things are wrong among her neighbors. There's all kinds of conflict. You read the book, you'll get a sense of this, and we'll hit on a little bit of this. But Esther and Mordecai are living ordinary lives the best that they can. Despite all this change, all this struggle, all this new cultural stuff that they're going through, they're doing the best life they can. A few years ago, probably early in our marriage, my wife gave me a little sign, a little decorative sign. The sign says, don't question your wife's judgment. She married you. And I have, like, kept that. So I've kept that over the years. I look at it sometimes. I remind myself of it at certain moments. I don't want to talk about my moments, but I have them, and I need that sign to say don't question her judgment right about now. The reason I'm bringing that up is partially because we laugh because we all understand what family can feel like in these moments we have. But what I want to say is don't question God's judgment because he made you. You're going to have moments where you're like, what's going on in my life? But don't question God's judgment. He made you, and he put you in the family that you're in. He made your family. And some of us feel a little bit like, oh, man, i got to talk to God about that when I'm driving home. And I get that. But God knows what he was doing. He put you in a family, as imperfect as it might feel. I just want to say that your family's not wrong. I'm not going to point fingers because you don't know me, but your family's not wrong because of you or you or you or you. It's not wrong because of you, and it's not wrong because of somebody else. It's the family that God gave you. Now, let's think about just this family that Esther finds herself in. I already said Mordecai and Esther are cousins. Cousins don't start out intending to raise their cousins, but something happened to Esther's parents. We don't know what. And Mordecai becomes her functional father. He starts raising her. And years later, when she's a grown woman, the king of Persia decides through some conflict and some strife that we don't have time to go into, he says, the queen's out of here. Getting rid of the queen that I have. And the king says, I'm going to hold a beauty pageant. And through kind of an unbelievable wild set of circumstances, Esther goes from Jewish girl to queen. And so here she is going from Mordecai's daughter, just one of countless, numberless, nameless, unknown Jews, to the queen of all of Persia. Let's be honest for just a moment, because you need to know this about the book. This king of Persia seems to be quite a fool. He has a couple of bad habits you need to know about. One of them is 
He likes to drink a lot. And he seems to do it at the wrong times, and he makes remarkably terrible decisions, usually in response to overconsumption of alcohol. In addition, a furious rage seems common to him. He gets really, really angry, and it puts him out of his mind. He just starts making crazy decisions with furious rage. He's also absurdly irresponsible with money. There's several times in the book where he says things like, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give you up to half my kingdom which is quite a bit when you're the king of Persia. He just says, I'll just spend the money. He fails to make good judgments about the characters, the character of his political partners. He surrounds himself with people that have bad motives and bad activities and bad behaviors. For all these people like Esther, these are not good times when your king is acting like that. But unlike her king, Esther is a humble listener. She does what Mordecai tells her when she was growing up. She does what this person in charge of her beauty preparations, when the king put on this whole find a new queen beauty pageant idea that he dreamed up, she, she has a person assigned to, like, say, put on makeup, dress like this, do this. She listens to that person. She follows through on what they say. That being said, I don't want you to think that Esther's a pushover. She's not somebody who's just like, okay, I'll do what I'm told. Instead, she shows tremendous courage and commitment. She's no pushover, and neither is Mordecai. Mordecai served at the king's gate. He had no position. He was just at the king's gate. And early in the book, he realizes there's these people who've hatched this scheme to go kill the king. And he reports them, and he turns them in, and he works through whatever channels are necessary to report this sort of thing. And those people are arrested and captured and whatever, and the king's life is saved. And do you know what happens? Haman, this other character, remember I said the king's not good at choosing his partners? He doesn't think through like good, you know, who should I help? Who should I be loyal to? He chooses Haman, who is the enemy of Mordecai. And that's a th I bring this up because I want you to understand that Mordecai gets furious. There's this cultural thing about bowing down to a person. And Mordecai says, there is no way I am bowing down to Haman. There's no way I'm doing it. Because I saved the king's life, and the king elevates my enemy over me and says, I got to bow down to that guy? Forget it. I will never, ever bow down to that guy. That's Mordecai's heart. I share that because sometimes what you don't get now is what you need later. Life has disappointments. Things turn out in unpleasant ways, even for God's people. Sometimes what you don't get now is God's plan for what you'll get later. Speaking of later in the book of Esther, the king issues a decree to destroy the entire Jewish population of Persia. You can imagine who came up with this. It was Haman, of course. And there are three widespread responses to the king's decree to destroy all the Jews. Number one, there's feasting. This won't surprise you. I already said the king loves to drink and eat. So he gets his golden goblets and his wine, and he calls Haman over, and he says, let's throw a party. Let's feast. Let's drink a lot. Let's eat a lot. The Bible doesn't tell us why he acted this way, but some people just seem to think that feasting is the right way to go when life is really bad. So Haman's like, let's eat, drink, and be merry. I don't know if it's rich. I don't know if it's that he's rich. I don't know if he's arrogant. I don't know if he's insensitive. I don't know if he'd just been drinking through the day and the week and hadn't been thinking. I really don't know. But some people just seem to feast, and they're just like, let's just have a good time. Secondly, Esther 3 says a lot of people were fretting. They were fretting. They were worrying. This is the rest of Susa, probably. These people are nervous because I think the Jews are probably their business partners. 
The Jews are their neighbors. The Jews might have married into their family. The Jews are people who go to their school or people who work at their company or people who live down the street or people that they just sort of know and generally don't want to have like genocide going on in their city. So it'd be great if we could just not have that. So they're fretting. There's all this confusion in Susa. There's chaos in Susa. There's, <clears throat> there's just stress. Like, what is going on now? And to top it all off, the king is feasting and drinking. So that only adds to the fretting and the angst and the emotional stress for these people. The third response to this idea of a genocide comes from the Jews themselves. They start fasting. They tear their clothes, which is a symbolic real activity, a symbolic action, though, if we're so upset, we're tearing our clothes because we're dependent on God to come through for us. So they put on sackcloth and ashes. They go throughout the city. They're wailing and they're weeping bitterly. They're seeking the Lord. They're utterly desperate for his deliverance. What the Jews needed had to come from God. When hard time comes, will you feast or fret or fast? Sometimes if groups of people are persecuted in modern times, I see in the news where they'll run into the jungle or they'll hide or they'll flee to another country or something like that. They try to escape, but the Jews do the opposite. They run around with ripped clothes and sackcloth and ashes and they're weeping and wailing. It's in a sense a desperate invitation that either God's going to rescue us or everybody's going to know exactly who we are and exactly what's happening to us. They're responding with desperate faith. Remember I said that Esther's no pushover or no fool. Instead, she asks Mordecai at this moment with all this pressure and all this societal confusion, she asks Mordecai, rally the Jews. She says, we need to pray and fast for three days. She's very specific, night or day, nobody eats. And she says, then I'll go to the king and intercede for the people. At the end of chapter 4, after Mordecai and Esther talk, he does what she commanded him to do. See, we've gone from Mordecai commanding Esther, the older cousin, raising the younger cousin in this unexpected family imperfect situation. Now we've gone from Mordecai commanding Esther to Esther commanding Mordecai. The adopted daughter, the little girl, so to speak, has become a full-grown woman with a plan. And Mordecai cooperates, which I find unbelievable. I find a little like, wow, that's amazing. How did they manage to change as a family? How did they manage to grow? Well, I want to suggest to you that when you're a Mordecai, be a Mordecai in your family. I'm speaking metaphorically. When you're an Esther, be an Esther. Now, let me expand that simple idea just a little bit because I'm talking about you being who you are, but I'm also touching in a different direction. Let the Esthers in your life act like it. How hard would it have been in this situation for an Esther to look the man who raised her in the face, a man who stepped up as a cousin and said, I'll be your father and I guess we'll do the best we can, how hard would it be for her to look him in the face and say, go rally the Jews? It's time for me to give you orders. It's time for me to step up as a younger person, but I've got to like figure this out. I'm the queen. Go, go fast. Go rally the Jews. Don't eat. Don't, don't drink. Don't do anything. We've got to figure this out. How hard would that be for her to be so decisive and so commanding? When the Esthers in your life are right, even if it's around the Thanksgiving table, hopefully that's kind of a chill time, but if it's not, or whenever, when the Esthers are right in your life, let them be right. When they have got the wisdom or the position and they're right, let them be the Esthers. Don't make it harder for them. Now, the flip side is true, too. 
For those of you who are Mordecai's, quote unquote, the rest of you have got to say, I'm going to let the Mordecai be the Mordecai. If it's a Mordecai moment, if it's not my time, if this Mordecai is in my life, let the Mordecai be the Mordecai. Because on the flip side, how hard would it be for Mordecai to let the young woman that he raised voluntarily sort of embracing this younger cousin and saying, I'll be your father, I'll raise you up in the best I can. I'm in Persia, your parents are gone, but I'll raise you up best I can in this complicated city with this king who gets drunk and these people who are not our people. I'll do the best I can. How hard would it be for him to take orders from Esther? So we've got to show grace if people are a little slow to catch up. I have a friend, Carl. I used to live out in Oregon. My wife and I have been rolling stones, but we've done, let's see, Tennessee, Oregon, Baltimore, Connecticut, on and on, lots of places. So one time in our life, short stint out in Oregon, I became friends with a guy named Carl. Oregon has a huge running culture. A lot of things define Oregon, but running is one of them. Carl was a very good runner, even in his 60s. I knew him in his 60s. I was never as good at jogging as Carl is, but Carl and I would go hiking together, and I could manage that. But he was a great runner. And his son David was an incredible runner, like a competitive runner. I didn't realize that there's the Olympics, and then below the Olympics are lots of people who get paid just to run. And then Carl was like a step down from that. And Carl's running with his son David, and they'd go running all the time, and they decided to do a race together. And Carl, like I said, is a good runner. But in the middle of this race, he's doing with David, his son, who's probably in high school or his early 20s. Carl realizes, my son's not running his best race. And Carl says, David, come on, you, you know, you're not running your best race. And David says, Dad, we're just running together. It's just fun. And Carl looks at him, you know, jogging side by side. Carl looks at him and says, go run your race, David. Because he realized his son had become fast enough, fit enough, smart enough about the strategy of running that he was like holding himself back just to be with dad. And Carl was saying, David, you got to go. You got to go run your race right now. Carl told me the story later and said, in this moment, I realized David's got to go right now. David's got to go run his race right now, right in the middle of the jaw or the, you know, this competitive race. And David took off. David went and ran his race. I don't know strategy of races and all that kind of stuff. And it may not help anyway. But David was like, it's time for me to run. I got to get my pace. I got to do my stride. I got to analyze who do I want to beat? Who do I want to catch? How do I want to finish? David took off, ran his own race. And it's part of his story today to become the man he was. But Carl had to say, go, run your race. That's what a mother, a father, a cousin can do. So consider as a family how you need to create some new patterns do you realize that people are growing up in your family or have grown up in your family? Do you fail to realize that people are changing? I brought this today to help out a little bit. Number one, you're probably saying to yourself, this preaching, you know, I'm going to have to bear with this guy, so that helps. But I was trying to find my son's socks, which is not exactly my skill set, speaking of things. So I'm going through the drawer, and I find this. So bear with me with the sermon. But what would be wrong if I tried to wear this shirt? It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit, right? Because I've changed. My three-year-old, Dawson, he can wear this shirt. No way I'm wearing this shirt. I'd split it, I'd rip it, whatever. It's been, you know, 35 years since I could wear a shirt like this. I don't wear shirts like that because I've grown up. We've got we to gotta realize each other's potential. And it's easy to do with a kid's shirt. I mean, we kind of look at it and we're like, whew, 
Got to change that. Even I can hold up the socks and go, that's not going to fit the foot anymore. It's pretty easy in those ways. But what about other ways? Are we realizing each other's potential? Are we clearing the way for somebody around us to grow, to ascend, to take off on their race? It's kind of bizarre, honestly, to watch my parents play with my kids when they come up here or when we go down that way to them. Because I'm looking and I'm going, that's my dad, but that's not my dad. That's not the same man that, like, I remember 30 years ago. He's changed. He's grown. He's doing things he didn't do before. He's saying things he didn't do before. That's my mom. She's different. She's, she's, she's learned new things. She's changed. She's in a different season of life. Maybe, maybe, if you're brave and you're sensitive, you can think to yourself or among your family, we haven't been letting each other reach our full potential. Admit, maybe we haven't been respecting each other's gifts or calling or purpose or worth or abilities. That's a tough conversation, but don't be afraid to have it. You can use I statements. Maybe you can say, I'm sorry about something. You might say, uh, forgive you. You might even say, if you can't forgive yet for whatever the situation is, maybe just say to the person or to yourself, I'm trying to forgive. I'm working on forgiving. You can start affirming each other. Say, I see this in you. Or you're not like taken off, but can I help you? Because you could. Your family can be different. You can recognize your Mordecai moments. You can embrace your Esther moments. You can be who you are. You can support each other. You can let each other be who you are in the plan of God. And since you don't know me, I just want to be super clear. I'm not saying that I ever think it's going to become one big happy family. This isn't some naive motivational speech about if only you tried a little harder, it'd turn into like one of those TV dramas from like 50 years ago. They don't even make the dramas now. It's obvious that they're just like giving up. But I'm saying, you know, a long time ago, we have this nostalgic view that used to watch this family on TV. I don't, I'm not naive. I'm not naive about family. Things go wrong in families. That's what's beautiful about Esther and Mordecai. It's like, it's challenging. It's hard. But I'm saying work together as a family. Your family has a purpose. What role does your family play? What potential does your family hold? You've got intrinsic qualities as a family. No other family's got. No other group of people put together because God has put you together. No other group of people put together has got the potential you can do. So prayerfully ponder that. What can you do for the Lord based on where you are? You can rally together as a family. You can work together because every family has the people that it needs to satisfy God. Esther didn't have to say, why don't I have parents? Why is this my life? Why did my life turn out like this? I didn't want to be raised by my cousin, and Mordecai didn't turn around and spend a lot of time based on the scriptures. We don't see any evidence that Mordecai sat around saying, I don't know why i got to raise my cousin. <laughs> I thought I was done with all that. I thought I was older. I thought, oh, that's not my path in life. I, I don't, I, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this. Teenagers, mm, I didn't sign up for that. Middle of the night interruptions, I didn't sign up for that. I'm, it's bad enough being in Susa as it is. Does anybody know who my king is? And now I'm, no. Rally your family. Work together. Do your part. Let other people do their part. Sometimes you'll have to become greater, and you'll need to accept that. Sometimes you'll have to become lesser, and you need to accept that. That's especially common in the Bible. John the Baptist had to become lesser when Jesus was elevated to the clear Messiah in everybody's awareness. He was already the second person of the Trinity, but there was a moment when John the Baptist said, I've got to become less, he's got to become greater. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. There was a point when King David had to pass the baton and say, King Solomon's the one, not me anymore. King Solomon's going to build the temple, not me. King Solomon's going to carry on, not me. 
It happened for Mordecai. It happened for Esther. It's going to happen in your family as well. When Esther and Mordecai did that, do you know what happened? Well, before the story's out, things get worse. I'd love to say that the turn in the story is like, ah, oh, it just gets better. Oh, it just starts to be wonderful now because they kind of worked through that family thing. And Mordecai said, I'm going to let you be Esther. And Esther said, that's good. Thanks, cousin. We're good. It got harder because Satan is battling God. That's why things get harder. It's not that Esther and Mordecai have got a problem. They're not doing this with each other. They've got that part right. But now Satan is still battling against God. So I encourage you, keep your weapons trained on your real enemies, not on each other. So rally together, work together, talk together. And Mordecai does this with Esther. He talks with her, I'm saying. Because he looks at her and he says, you better say something to the king. You better say something to the king. Because he's recognizing you're the queen Jews are in a bad situation. You better say something to the king. What he means is you better use your power and your position to do something. You got to talk to the king. Mordecai issues a good challenge to Esther. No doubt about it. Talk to the king. Esther, however, does Mordecai one even better. Because she says, talk to God. She says, fast and seek God. The world would go better, wouldn't it, if you and I would seek God, not just put responsibility on other people. And now let's, let's just kind of unpack that for just a second. The world would go better if we sought God and didn't just put all the responsibility on people. What I'm saying is let's seek God and let's put legitimate responsibility on people. Your family's potential, whatever it is, is entirely dependent on God's power. Don't think for a moment that God's not the hero. You can't, you can't overestimate your power. You can't overestimate your family member's power. You don't want to underestimate it either because it's all dependent on God's power. So unless a family member is actually responsible for the problem, which Esther's not, right? She didn't start the genocide. She didn't say, let's do this. This is my idea as queen. She's not responsible for it. So the best thing to do is seek God and put the responsibility where it belongs. Now, look what happens when the Jews fast. Look at what happens when they say God is big and people are small. Number one, Esther gets access to the king. This is breaking tradition. I don't want to get totally into the book. Like I said, there's 10 chapters. It's too much for me. But she gets access to the king. The previous queen kind of had this bad relationship. Remember I said things went bad with the previous queen? And yet here Esther is, new queen, and the king says, I'll grant her an audience. I will let her come talk to me. I will listen to what she has to say. Number two, the king is urgently motivated to give Esther what she wants. You'll remember that I said sometimes the king liked to give away a lot of his money and seemed kind of absurdly irresponsible with money. Well, it was to Esther that he said, Whatever you want up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Now, plenty of us would say, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. Like, I mean, he can't even add it up. The, the scriptures have the number of provinces and cities and regions and districts and all this. You can go back, look that up later. Some of us would just be like, I'm going to take half the kingdom. Let's just start there because while, while he's making the offer, I'm going to take it. He even seems sober. He's making this grandiose offer, but he even seems to be sober. And he's saying, Esther, come to me. This is what's going on with fasting. Now, number three is the most interesting. The king has a strangely sleepless night. When you're arguably the richest 
or one of the richest people in the world, surrounded by servants, and you have what appears to be an endless quantity of wine, and you like to enjoy it, and you eat heavy, rich food all the time, and you have servants taking care of your every need, and you got tons of money, how can you not sleep at night? I thought not sleeping at night was for normal people. The king of Persia should be able to sleep at night. I don't understand it. But God's people are fasting. And in that king's sleepless night, he remembers years ago, this guy named Mordecai saved my life because he found out this scheme that people were trying to take my life. And he says to himself, did anybody ever do anything for Mordecai? Anybody ever like honor him? I mean, we got a, can, can we get a plaque in his memorial? Somebody put up a park, a statue, anything? I don't, you know, I don't know what they did back in Persia, but he's, he's thinking, what did we do for Mordecai? So he digs through the books and the records and talks to people, whatever. In the end, nobody did anything for Mordecai. And he remembers all of this at the perfect moment because while God's people are fasting and the king's not sleeping and he realizes that Mordecai's been faithful and never been honored, Haman is building a way to take Mordecai's life. Haman has escalated his scheme to the point that he's ready to put everything in motion. And guess whose name's at the top of the list on the victim list? It's going to be Mordecai who goes first. This is all in God's perfect time. And I say that because I want you to know that God is listening. God is paying attention. God is honoring his people. God is helping his people. God is watching out for his people. He is orchestrating something even when it blows our mind. I think you talked, Richard, about things being beyond our imagination. A God who can do more than we can imagine. That is happening right now when a king can't sleep, who has every reason to sleep. Everyone loves the verse in Esther chapter 4. If you've ever sort of heard the book thrown around, it's like a great tweet for such a time as this. Mordecai says to Esther, for such a time as this, maybe for such a time as this, you're the queen. And we love that verse. It feels great. And I'm legitimately respecting that verse. We love it for such a time as this. For such a time as this, Esther had huge faith. I think it's a great Bible verse. I think she trusted God. She had huge faith at that moment to go, I'm going to go talk to the king. For such a time as this, this is why I'm queen. This is why it's my moment. But here's the Esther verse that I don't think anybody puts on Twitter. Here's the Esther verse I don't think anybody puts on Facebook or Instagram. Esther looks at Mordecai and she says, fast for me. She looks at Mordecai in the pressure of the moment with the fear and everything else and she says, fast for me. She doesn't say, hmm, I'm the queen. I got this. She doesn't, I realize a woman probably wouldn't do that, especially a queen. Sorry, that's what I would do in that moment. I don't know what a queen would do. I don't know what a woman would do in that moment. She doesn't, whatever it is, she doesn't look in the moment and say, I can handle this. This is my moment to shine. My clothes are right. My hair's right. I'm smart. Whatever she would have said or could have sort of projected out there about how great she is, she doesn't say that. She says, fast for me. Fast for me. Fast for me. We're almost done. When what you need is more than what you have, fast. When what you need is more than what you have, seek that heavenly father who said, I can keep a king up at night. I know they're building something against you, but I've, I've got the king's attention. I'll keep him up tonight. I've got it all woven together. 
When you see your Esther moment clearly, see God. When you see your Mordecai moment clearly, and it's time to let go and raise somebody else up, so to speak, encourage them, call them out, see God. Others might be telling you, if you're kind of having an Esther moment, others might be telling you, for such a time as this, for such a time as this, for such a time as this, and you're feeling that pressure. And in that moment, what you can say is, fast for me. And if you don't, you know, if that's not going to, like, work at the Thanksgiving table, you know, maybe, like, it's kind of awkward time to be asking people to fast, you can inwardly say, he's paying attention to me. He's got me. God is going to take care of me. As the book ends, Haman dies on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Haman goes down, and Mordecai and the Jews are exalted. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, the Jews are saved. Mordecai is elevated to an unimaginable level. When hard time comes, some people feast, some people fret, and some people fast. Esther moments depend on God's goodness. Mordecai moments demand God's action when what you need is more than you can accomplish. Even if other people are saying for such a time as this, even if your college degree or your work history or your own heart, whatever is going, this is my moment, but I'm sweating and I'm nervous and I'm afraid, but this is, but turn to God, throw up a prayer. Let's ease into the slow lane. This has been pretty intense. I feel it. Maybe you feel it. I don't, I don't really know you. I don't know your family, but as we slow down a little bit. I just want to give you a thought. Maybe right now or this afternoon, just jot down some notes. I mean, you can dictate it into your phone, jot down some notes. If you just remember things, that's good, amazing for you. Just, just think through some things right now. Just a few simple thoughts related to your family. It could be as simple as apologize. It could be as simple as celebrate or encourage or recognize somebody else. It might be tomorrow night at the family altar that you just gather together with whoever you do that with and just say, let's just be in prayer for our family potential, our family purpose, kind of what our next steps might be. And talk about it tomorrow night at family altar. Pray about it. Think about it. And I would encourage you, it's okay to just limit that to like 30 minutes. I don't know about you being real about who I am. Sometimes I get wrapped around the axle of this thing and I'm just like, what's my purpose? What's my question? What's my worth? What should I be? You know, and it... And, you know, hours later, it's like, man, I just need some ice cream right now. I just need, like, some donuts or something, you know. And then I'm like, I'm too, I'm just going to go to bed. I'm, I'm just, I recognize it's a huge question. So maybe just, like, 30 minutes, just, like, some prayer, some thought, one thing, just, like, apologize or affirm or celebrate or invite. I don't know. Just something simple. God is listening, and he knows what to do. If he can help Esther and Mordecai, he can help us. Let's take a minute and pray. We can boldly come before the throne of grace. Same heavenly fathers listening to us now that was listening to them. Let's pray. We do celebrate. We do praise who you are. It's a little bit hard for me to get my head around, but I praise you, God, because you saved probably hundreds of thousands of lives. You set up a scenario that seemed impossible, seemed improbable, It seemed terrifying if I'm the queen going into a king with a reputation like that, feeling the pressure of a nation at a young age, and a cousin courageous enough, and if if I'm just imagining the story, I'm just thinking, wow, what a background, what a lot of stress, what a lot of fear, what a lot of struggle. But who among us in our own family hasn't felt some of that stress, some of that concern, some of that difficulty? We rest in you, Jesus. 
we rest in you. You're the king who came for us. You're the king who met all our needs. You're the king who fights for us. You're the king who keeps the kings of this world up at night so you can get your will done on earth as it is in heaven. You did it with Esther. You did it with Mordecai. We're praising you for it. We're celebrating you for it. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, for each one of us, knowing that you're very personal, you're very present, you're with us this week, work, school, family stuff, next week at Thanksgiving, you're with us. We just need you to get our attention a little bit, give us that little bit of clarity to say, this is your purpose, this is your moment. And if it terrifies us, then I pray that we'd seek you. And if we're just not able to see it and we get some family members who come to us, we praise you, God, help us to receive that, help us to be ready for it. If we need to, if, if we're just in a waiting spot and we got to let some other families, family members be where they are and we got to be gracious with them and patient with them, then help us to do that as well. Family life is complicated. Family life does, does not often seem as easy as it did when we're reading about somebody else's story like Esther and Mordecai, but we're trusting you. We're asking you to lead us one day at a time, one conversation at a time so that we can have the family you've brought us together to be, each one of us in our own lives, each one of us in our own family, so that you get the glory and the honor and the power, so that these things get worked out on heaven and on earth, so that your greatness, your love, your power gets displayed. That's what we want. So we need to see it. We want to show it to others, a city on a hill. That's what we're asking for in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.